several years ago, after uh, offering a month-long retreat on Maui, where we have our all of our retreat supplies stored at our home, and we set them up in a uh, a B and B facility uh, for use during the month. At the end of which, we we get the local sangha to help us pack them all up and take them back to the house and store them. And it's quite a big production. A lot of people, a lot of trucks, a lot of a few several hours. And at the end of one uh, retreat. Uh, I was looking around to see that everything had been put away and finally we could all, we were done. And I saw a box of kitchen supplies left uh, untaken care of, so I went over to the box and I looked through it and I picked up a box and I said to my friend Duke, who was helping uh, take care of things, I said, Duke, how would you like to have a box of sugar-free, wheat-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, chocolate-chip-less chocolate-chip cookies? (laughs) He said, there are some things in life I can do without. Which is a really good expression of the wisdom of renunciation. And renunciation is another one of those forces of purity in the mind, the paramis, that I spoke about uh, a couple nights ago. But when we hear the word renunciation, it's not often with a lot of joy and, you know, a kind of a clear understanding of how that is going to be a, uh, well, a path to happiness. Because a lot of times we think of renunciation as, you know, we think of the uh, hermits in the desert and others in different spiritual traditions that are kind of living in extreme poverty with uh, not much material or other supports for happiness. And they're just living without and living in a state of deprivation, you might say. Having, been, having become a renunciate. But that's not really the... That's not the path, that's not the goal of renunciation as a, a practice in this tradition. But rather, we can begin to get a glimpse of what renunciation might be in this tradition by just looking at our experience here on the retreat. You know, we come here for a week, nine days, sometimes a little longer, and we give up temporarily the pleasure of home, the pleasure of our friends and our familiar behaviors or distractions or just the familiarity of our lifestyle. We give it up to come here and we live pretty simply, uh, without a lot of adornment, without a lot of (coughs) comfort, I mean, adequate, but uh, not a lot of uh, distractions or or even activities. And while we give up sources of pleasure and ease in our life, when we come here and practice, 
we find another way of coming to a place of ease, contentment, happiness, which is not dependent on having, doing, becoming, but rather it has to do with the quality of our heart, quality of our mind, and how present and how um, attuned we are to the way things are and living in harmony with that. And so we can see even in a week-long retreat how renunciation can be the vehicle for a different form of happiness or a different vehicle for happiness in our life. So I want to speak about renunciation as quality of heart that we cultivate on this path and on this journey and try to uh, show you how our work here this week really lays the foundation and develops quite a lot of renunciation that is a support for a subtler a subtler kind of happiness, a more enduring and subtler kind of happiness in our life. You know, we have the historical record of the Bodhisattva who became Gautama Buddha 2,500 years ago, a little more than 2,500 years ago. And it, it is said that he grew up in his father's who, palace or luxurious homes um, and had all the wealth of uh, and resources that, that wealth could, could acquire for him while he was growing up. And so he you know, had plenty to eat and didn't have to do manual labor and had comfortable abode and lots of attendance. And we see, we get this image of a very indulgent, luxuriant, uh, prince-like existence. And then we hear that at age 29 he renounced that and went to went in search of the truth as he um, had begun to see it and gave it all up and lived a life of extreme asceticism for six years. Just extreme, extraordinary asceticism, simplicity, living with, on one meal a day, living remote from family and friends, just having a few companions to practice with. And by all accounts, by his own account, uh, uh, experienced extreme pain and deprivation in the body and stress in the mind. And after his awakening and realization of the truth, we have him pointing to the way to the supreme peace as the way of renunciation to realize this supreme peace. And so we, we're, we're left with this kind of conflicted, kind of a ambiguous or an unclear, what's the role of renunciation? Here's this prince and here's that ascetic. And if we had a choice, if we had to choose one or the other, I don't know as we'd choose to be the ascetic, take that form of practice, but nevertheless, 
Here we are. And it's important to to hear about renunciation and the renunciate lifestyle and the benefits of renunciation in part because in some ways we could say that the renunciate is an archetype within our psyche. There's been a historical record of monks, nuns, hermits, renunciates, spiritual seekers from the beginning of time. And there's something about it that is available to us, calls us at times, and uh, even now we find ourselves dabbling, at least, with the benefits of renunciation. The challenge for us is that in our culture, we do not have many models of renunciates that society kind of looks up to or that we are conditioned to believe or to see as an an admirable or a useful way of life. You know, if we just try to think of who, who, who do we know that's a public figure or someone that's known who is a renunciate that we would admire or that would be universally recognized as good human being. It's not easy, is it? The one that I the one that I think of, my particular bent, is David Souter, who was a Supreme Court judge, retired four or five years ago, and in the midst of and at the height of power in the US, certainly as a Supreme Court judge, just chose to live very simply, live very um, minimally acquiring just minimal stuff and even chose to retire early because that just really wasn't um, that attractive to him. Okay. An example, but not even that is that compelling. So what does renunciation really mean? Or what is, what is renunciation in, in essence, or at rock bottom, it's, it's about letting go. And we talked about letting go earlier today. You know, how, do we, how do we step back? How do we let go of our entanglement with experience? And that is a form of learning how to let go. But when we talk about renunciation and letting go, we're really talking about letting go of kind of an inferior form of satisfaction, gratification, or happiness for something that's, that's better. The Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, then let the wise, those who are wise, pursue that happiness which is greater. Now, we might ask, well, what's a greater happiness? Well, it's one that's maybe more enduring, more reliable, more maybe more subtle. It's not just a sensual pleasure indulging in a temporary or momentary sensual pleasure of your pick, take your pick. But it's, it's really learning to let go of something that we may be very attracted to, um, enjoy, 
because there's something better if we do, something available to us that's not available if we don't. In our life, we are all, we're all householders, we're not monks, we're not nuns. We may have taken temporary, taken up robes temporarily, and certainly being on retreat is a temporary renunciation. But for the most of us, we, we require a lot of stuff. We require a lot of knowledge. We require a lot of uh, activity and behavior to kind of, ma- to kind of manage a life in this world. It takes a lot. And so we're pretty busy acquiring, consuming, having, becoming, which is, doesn't look like renunciation much at all. So how, how is it for us? What is it that we can do to cultivate the greater happiness, of, the greater happinesses, if you will, of renunciation? <coughs> so Dilko Kensi Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher of the last century, he, 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 he kind of laid down the, the mark of the high bar of renunciation when he said, renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with this endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. I think we all know what that feels like. It's just like, let me just step off of this treadmill that I never asked to be on but seems to be the only way to get through life and just give me a break. Just let me kind of simplify. Let me... Let me kind of give up a little bit of this endless pursuit for what, well, we, we all have some taste of recognizing that we're pursuing this that really isn't all that satisfying. So how do we do it? How do, what, what is it we actually have to do to, you know, act on and to realize kind of the, the end of, or at least the lessening of, this endless quest that comes with disillusionment. Now, lest you think that renunciation is going to be painful and hard and something that you have to do against your own self-interest, I want to point to one example of Renunciation that we all experienced a lot, and it wasn't painful at all. Remember when you were young, a young child or teenager, whatever, and you had your favorite toy, or musical instrument, or friend, at least the sport, something that was the passion of your life at that time. Something that you just couldn't live without, woke for, and indulged in as much as you could for that period of time. 
where is that toy now? Where's that musical instrument now? Where's that friend now? Where's your, you know, joy playing that sport or that musical instrument? Where is it? Long forgotten. Maybe it's in maybe maybe it's actually in the attic or in the cellar somewhere, but it is no longer the object of attachment and no longer the object of your joy or your passion. Somehow in the intervening years, probably a long time ago, the mind just let go. It just let go, it's just like this doesn't work in doesn't work for me anymore. That's renunciation. We outgrow our attachments sometimes. But we outgrow the, the satisfaction. It no longer brings us the satisfaction that we enjoyed previously. And yet that form of letting go is not painful at all. It's, it actually can be a relief. Well, it's easy to see that we've outgrown childhood toys and behaviors. It's even easy to see that many of us, certainly at this age, have outgrown the behaviors or or the misbehaviors of early adult uh, years. And here we are, midlife or so. I remember, I used to be, as you all know, uh, deadhead. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and, you know, I just really just loved the Grateful Dead and just listened to their music all the time, went to as many shows as I could. And then I got involved in the Dharma and started doing retreats. And at one point, after I'd been doing practicing Dharma for a few years, I had this most fortuitous karmic event. I was doing a two-week retreat, 14 days of silence, stillness, quiet, opening, sensitivity, just really getting open. The last day of which there was going to be a dead show just an hour away in Providence. So I said, wow, what could be better? Clean out, calm down, open up, get really sensitive, 14 days, go to a show. (laughs) It was unbearable. It was so loud and so chaotic and so stimulating. It was just painful, much to my surprise. I even got in a car accident, being not that mindful. But anyway, what I hadn't realized through my years of Dharma practice is that my fascination with, the satisfaction of, and my attachment to the music and listening to the music and that kind of happiness just just outgrew it, outgrew it. And something of greater happiness, a a different kind of happiness, a subtler happiness, more compelling, er, of more compelling urgency in my life. Dharma, understanding, calmness, tranquility, equanimity, awareness, had 
risen to the surface and was my new object of fascination and source of happiness. Well, I now look back and I realize that just because we reach adult age doesn't mean we've stopped growing. When you're young and you grow, it's pretty obvious. When you reach adult age, it seems like, well, you stay the same for 30 or 40 years in there or something like that. But actually we all, if we wish, if we were working on it, keep growing. And sometimes we forget to let go of what we've held on to before. Like I discovered when I went to the show after a few years of Dharma practice. So it encourages me to remind you to take an inventory, to take a look through the attics of your life and see what behaviors, beliefs, companions, activities, things you formerly acquired, enjoyed, got great satisfaction from, that no longer serve your life purpose. Our our aspirations change with Dharma practice. What is of value to us changes. We make different decisions. We we choose to um, go in a different direction, if you will, with our energy. And yet, we often still carry around baggage of beliefs, behaviors, uh, friends or former friends that no longer serve our aspiration. In fact, they may actually hinder it considerably. And if we don't take an inventory and look and just say, you know what, this really is not serving me anymore, then we can keep indulging or consuming and holding ourselves back, keeping, preventing ourselves from really realizing our aspiration or at least moving towards it. So, this kind of renunciation of just growing up, there's a kind of renunciation, but the more conscious and aware we are of growing and what our emerging aspiration is through Dharma practice, the more active the renunciation can become and the more support it'll offer to our aspiration. In Dharma practice, there are many forms of letting go. In fact, the whole, the whole path of awakening could be seen as a path of letting go, learning to let go. Learning to let go, experiencing the loss, and learning how to grieve the loss of what we've let go of, and moving on. The Buddha, it is said that the Buddha, when first speaking to students, would always speak about generosity first. Because it's, it's not particularly Buddhist, and it's something that we all can see. It's an act of letting go. Being generous with time, knowledge, resources, and learning how to let go and the joy of letting go. But it's not so much letting go of stuff and things. 
It's learning to let go of attachment. That's what we're really learning, practicing generosity. Because we hold on to our idea of ourselves, our material goods, our knowledge, our time, and it's learning how to open the mind, like opening our hand to let go and share. I'm not going to speak about generosity tonight, but I'm going to move on to other forms or other practices of letting go that the Buddha talked about. Another way, or a significant way, of practicing renunciation is to undertake the precepts, as we do here. And for most of us, taking the precepts is not, I mean, the householder's precepts is not particularly onerous. We're not killers and stealers and thieves and criminals and whatever. But there's some, there's some limitations. And, you know, here on retreat, um, we take on the third precept of refraining from acting out our sexual energy and refraining from the use of intoxicants, which, you know, in a, as a householder, we can use skillfully if we wish. But this is learning how to look at our behavior and see what behavior is not supporting our aspiration. Sometimes we recognize that something we're doing causes us harm or causes others harm. It may be overindulging in intoxicants. It may be acting out sexuality in a way that causes harm. It may be just overeating. Uh, it may be undereating. It may be using what, whatever. There can just be a lot of behavioral uh, grasping that could use a little renunciation to bring our life into greater harmony and happiness. And one way that we do that is through acquiring knowledge. When we hear about the harmful effects of certain behavior, then we're more likely to want to stop or to let go of doing that. I remember when I was younger, I used to smoke cigarettes and other things, but cigarettes. And then the Surgeon General comes out with the report that says, bad for you. And, you know, I read the report and I saw the photos and I just said, wow, this I love smoking, you know, but the consequences, the potential consequences of smoking were really fearful, threatening, harmful. And so out of fear of the potential consequences, I gave up smoking. This is not fear out of aversion. It's fear out of wisdom. It's, it's wise fear to fear harm. Okay, so with the knowledge that something is going to at least has the potential for causing great harm, we can find reasons for letting go, for giving it up. Well, the same happens with other behaviors that we, when we learn that they can be harmful, it's easier to give them up. And the Buddha says of this kind of renunciation, even though the pleasure is great, the regret is greater. It is easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself, but it is very difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good. 
for himself. Sometimes it's not easy. But we make a commitment. Like on the retreat, seven days, commitment to exercise some restraint in this way. What we're actually doing, we're learning to let go. That's true. We're learning the kind of happiness that that letting go can bring. But we're learning something about the power of commitment. And this is an important lesson in our journey of awakening. We learn to just simplify our life. We learn to make skillful choices. We learn to um, look at what we really need and only pursue to acquire that much. It also helps to calm the mind. You know, sometimes, I used, when I used to teach a three-month course, three-month retreat, I'd be away for six weeks, seven weeks, or sometimes three months, and I'd come back home, and it was right just before Christmas, so I'd come home to a huge box of catalogs. Now, do you know what a catalog is? <laughs> catalog is 120 pages of things you've never needed and yet it's hard not to look through you get that catalog there might be something in there I need and actually what happens when you look through a catalog your mind your eyes scan your mind takes in every object on the page and does a quick kind of uh, analysis do I need this and it's not always a clear yes, no. There's a lot of maybes. Yes, no, maybe fold over the corner of the page, <laughs> on to the next night. At the end of the magazine, we're so dissipated and we have, we're so exhausted and the mind is so weak that we buy something just to get rid of the <laughs> Well, Endless choice, endless consideration of possibilities depletes and weakens the mind. Because we can't... We, we, we won't stay mindful of seeing every one of those things. We'll just kind of... And, and every, everything that we're, we are drawn to takes a little piece of our, our mind and gets stuck on that page. And pretty soon we've got no mind. we just got this desire for something. Wow, look, look. You watch for yourself. You'll see what happens when you read, when you read through a catalog like that. So it takes this knowledge to really look and see what is it that is going to support our aspiration and to make the choices, not necessarily from the catalog, but in behaviors that really reflects the direction we want to go in our life. One, one, one year after the uh, three-month course. Kamala and I went back to Maui and just as a kind of a pre-season. We went to one of the resorts to have dinner. We went to one of the resorts, had a nice dinner, and then they bring around the dessert menu and we picked the most chocolate, multiple chocolate, 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 and decided to have that one. So we had a nice dinner. We got the chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. We ate that, after which we both felt like... <sighs> and out of 
I don't know, probably sheer misery, I just said, God, I'm not going to eat chocolate for a year. You know, I give it up. And she said, what? I said, I'm going to, I'm stop eating chocolate. I'm not going to eat chocolate for a whole year. She said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, no, I'm not. And she said, well, if you're going to give up chocolate, I guess I better give up chocolate with you. So we decided to give up chocolate for a year. Well, <laughs> the first time we were offered chocolate, whether it was at a restaurant or whatever, we just said, oh, no, got to remember, no, I'm not having chocolate today. Okay, what else is on the menu? Hmm, key lime pie. Okay. <laughs> so, with that. The second time it was like, oh, chocolate. Uh, no, no chocolate. Okay, you know, coconut macaroon. Okay. You know, third time it's like, chocolate, uh, what else you got? And after a few temptations, it was easy. Put it out of your mind. Just didn't go there. We did make one exception. If they serve chocolate ice cream on the cl- plane in first class when we have to get an upgrade, we allowed ourselves to <laughs> Okay. Other than that, we went for a year without, without chocolate. It's really valuable, really, really valuable lesson. I learned a couple of really important things. The first is, key lime pie, not so bad. <laughs> and the second is, the power of a unshakable commitment is unbelievable. If you make that firm, decisive commitment in your mind and then withstand the first few temptations or whatever and just drop into, this is it. It's not a torture every time you look at the menu, dessert menu. You just don't go there. Your mind just doesn't go there. This works for making a commitment to do or not to do anything, not just chocolate. But you have to have the kind of motivation, you have to have the kind of inspiration, you have to have the the idea of this kind of resolve that is possible and that it's worth doing. You can do it. Don Juan that great spiritual teacher of Carlos Castaneda, says to to attain our aspiration, he says, for this, a spiritual warrior needs prowess, strength, and above all else, sobriety. These three together define elegance. And this is the way to attain, obtain, attain, realize one's aspiration. So we outgrow attachments, letting go of them. We can use knowledge to encourage us to to let go of things that may cause us harm in the future. A third way that we learn to let go is through this practice of just being mindful. And it's a mental discipline. And the challenge for us in, in this mental discipline is, as you know, we uncover a tremendous amount of, well, unskillful, unnecessary, pain-causing habits. We worry, we get anxious, we get fearful, we get stressed out about this, that, and the other thing, because our mind is not very disciplined. 
It just is jerked about by all sorts of, well, defilements, as I spoke about the other night. And so in this practice, we gradually learn to recognize this undisciplined mind and bring some discipline to it by letting go of these habits. And we let go of the habits by exercising restraint sometimes, but more than that is seeing the habit when it arises. And this is a mental habit. You know, we pick up anxiety and we chew on it for you know, a week. We pick up fear, we chew on that. It's seeing the habit of picking it up and learning how to let it go. Not push it away, not condemn ourselves for it, but just not pick it up. I saw this really clearly on my first retreat. I didn't understand what I was seeing, but now I understand like this. went to my first retreat. I wasn't... Um, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, would, I don't know why I was at the retreat. I wasn't, I wasn't Buddhist. I wasn't looking for meditation or anything. It was just an accident. But even with a little bit of practice, you start to see what your mind is doing in its off time, in its free time, in its discretionary time. So I had gone to university and studied engineering back in the days when you didn't have handheld computers. Everything was done with slide rules and a lot of longhand math. So I had done, I'd taken a lot of advanced math courses and just spent years uh, doing numbers. So when my mind wandered, it would wander off into mathematical calculations. You know, and I would come to, you know, out of a daydream where I'd been multiplying two and three, four, five digit numbers and just kind of computing, computing in my head. And I'd, I'd find myself doing this and I'd say, do I need to be doing this now? <laughs> yeah. and, and it was easy to let go because there was no purpose to it whatsoever. But it was a mental habit I never knew I did until starting to practice mindfulness. Then you begin to see, holy Christ, this is how I spend my free time. What's your way of spending your free time? You've been looking at it for the last few days. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? We worry, we fret, we stew, we judge ourselves, we, you know, we doubt, fear. These are habits. They're just habits that proliferate and continue because, well, we haven't looked at them long enough to really understand them and to let go of them. So just being mindful, just practicing mindfulness is a great resource for practicing renunciation because we're going to see our mental habits and gradually learn to disengage from them. Now this kind of letting go, you can't do just by intention. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop worrying. Good luck. You can't, you can't, you can say that, but you're not going to stop worrying. It takes training. It takes a development, the development of a lot of mindfulness with understanding to put aside and why you should put aside and how to put aside these mental habits that just don't serve you. And it's clear if you can put aside these mental habits, you're going to be happier. It's not, it's not rocket science. If you can put aside some worry, some fear, some depression, some 
self-judgment, you'll be a lot happier. Not that those were ever bringing you happiness, but somehow they have gotten kind of activated as something that we do, some way that we are. This part of practice is takes up a lot of time where we have we're making the effort to be mindful and in the process of being mindful we uncover these deeply rooted habits which we cannot let go of intentionally it takes wisdom and understanding to let go of these mental habits like Sayadaw Tejaniya says you know it's not you who lets go of the defilements. Wisdom does that job. So we're caught in this place where mindfulness is revealing the habit, but the wisdom is not yet strong enough to let it go. And this is where a lot of practice takes place. And it's painful. We see it. We see these habits of mind over and over again and we get caught in them, we get entangled in them. Gradually, you know, with persistence, we begin to understand them, understand their nature, begin to recognize them quicker. We don't last, we don't get entangled in them for so long. And gradually there's, there's more relief from uh, the suffering that they cause. But it's a gradual process. But still, it is a powerful process because as we grow in our ability to recognize and to understand and to uh, not act out, we suffer less. So there's a lot of motivation for practicing mindfulness, even though it seems to reveal a tremendous amount of suffering. You know, they say there are two kinds of two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that reaches for something and holds on until the grip is so tight that it hurts. And then there's the suffering that is entailed when you learn to let go. Now just just imagine if you took your fist and just squeeze your fist in squeeze your hand into a fist as tight as you can and just hold it. After you know two minutes it starts to get hot. After five minutes it starts to get hard and tight. After 10 minutes, it's kind of throbbing, and after 15 minutes, it's completely numb. <laughs> you don't even feel it anymore. Your hands are still just squeezed tight, but you don't feel it. Totally numb. Walk around like that for a couple of decades, and then try to open your hand. Letting go is painful. It's painful because we've been holding on so long that you know the mind is crusty. Well, the hand gets kind of locked in. So you've been holding your hand, you've been holding something with your mind or holding something with your hand for a long period of time and Dharma practice says, open your hand or open your mind. And you try to open it, it's like all the ache, all the pain, all the numbness, all the stiffness comes back. It becomes, it becomes apparent. And you can think, why should I do that? Because when I do that, it just hurts more. It's more painful. This, this awareness or opening or trying to let go causes pain. But actually it doesn't. The pain is already there. We've just become numb to it. Learning to let go is learning is, is enduring the pain that leads to the end of suffering. Grasping and holding on is the pain that leads to more suffering. 
You can see it just in this example. The same thing is going on in our mind. We reach for and grab on to something that we think we need, and it's like, ah. Little do we realize that the longer we hold on to it, the more suffering, pain we're going to feel until we learn to let go. And that's what we're doing with this mindfulness practice, is recognizing wherever there's pain in our heart, wherever there's pain in our mind, and you can find it by where there's pain in the body is usually reflected in holding in the mind. Okay? Or I should say, holding in the mind is reflected as pain in the body. You have pain in the body, you can be sure the mind's holding on to something. Okay. So then when we try to open up the mind, we've got to work with the body and we've got to work with the mind. But we can. This kind of letting go is only possible through discipline. We can't... We can't we can't perform that letting go. We can't let go by just intention. Intention is powerful, commitment powerful, but not powerful enough for this. In the course of practice, there's another way of letting go. And I just mentioned it really when I said that it's not you who lets go of the defilements, as Sayadaw says, it's wisdom. How do we develop the wisdom? Or it's through practicing Vipassana that we develop the wisdom. And it's wisdom that lets go. And it happens like this. Vipassana means to see clearly, to see the intrinsic nature of things, to see the universal characteristics of all phenomena. And in the Buddhist teachings, there are three such characteristics. So we might say there are three insights to be acquired through Vipassana practice. And the first of these is that we come to understand, not just to see, we can see, we know that things are impermanent, we can see that things are impermanent, but to understand that things are impermanent is really a radical upheaval in our life when we come to see that everything is impermanent. What that means is that in the course of our practice, we begin to see that anything, anything, everything that arises in the mind dissolves. Everything that you've ever experienced is finished and over. Everything that you ever will experience is unstable and impermanent. At some point, the understanding of this and what that means for us in our life kind of dawns in the mind. And we we see, we get it, we understand. Nothing whatsoever is worth holding on to. It's not that it's not worth holding on to, it's that you can't hold on to it anyway. It's not there long enough to hold on to it. And yet we have been trying our whole life to acquire, obtain, solidify, stabilize all the stuff the support that we need, that we think we need, in order to be happy. And now we're seeing, it's like, that's not the way to happiness. The way to happiness is understanding that everything is impermanent, momentarily impermanent. You don't have to wait long. It's already impermanent. Suzuki Roshi, he says of, of this kind of renunciation, he says, true renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in knowing that they go away. 
just to know things go away. It's a profound realization. And imagine that in your practice, in your mind, you could see whatever arises in the mind that you might want to reach for and grab onto as a source of happiness or pleasure or security. Everything you see comes with the knowledge that it's impermanent. Why would the mind reach for anything that's impermanent? It's not there. You know, it's there, it's a mirage. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. The effort you make to reach for it, to grasp it, to hold on to it, is wasted effort because you can't. You can't reach it, you can't hold on to it because it's not there. When the mind knows this, and this is not just a thought, but when the mind is living at this level of understanding on a moment-to-moment basis, the mind doesn't have to let go of anything because it doesn't pick up anything. When the mind doesn't pick up anything, everything is available in the moment. Momentarily, everything's available. And we can't hang on to anything. It may sound kind of terrifying, it may sound kind of like destabilizing, but experientially, it's a great source of This knowledge is a great source of both wisdom and happiness. Knowing that one can live with this knowledge of the great instability of everything in life. There's a second um, insight, knowledge, and that is the insight into dukkha. Now, sometimes I give a talk on dukkha, but not tonight. But dukkha means that experience is, is either painful, or if not painful, it's unstable. It doesn't last. It's kind of uh, unstable. And sometimes experience is just oppressive. And everything has this characteristic. Everything, every, every experience is either painful. If it's not painful, it's pleasant. If it's pleasant, it's unstable. It doesn't last. And that in itself is that instability is also unsatisfactory. Pain is unsatisfactory. Instability is unsatisfactory. And when things are oppressive because they're incessantly barraging the sense doors, that's also unsatisfactory. And that's the condition, that's the characteristic of all phenomena. Wow. Is that what we're holding on to? Something that's painful or unstable or oppressive? When we see that, when we have that, when that understanding dawns in the mind, or when we realize, oh, this is the way it is, it's not, it's not difficult to let go. The mind doesn't want to reach and hold on to anything. And so it just lets things be the way they are, not relying on them as a source or support for our ultimate happiness, which is in itself the happiness of equanimity. When we have, when these insights arise and are mature, we live with a very balanced, very subtle actually, and balanced relationship to everything. We let things be as they are, and we don't reach for them, we don't grab them, we don't hang on to them. They arise, they pass away, we're at ease with that. This is equanimity. The insights, the three insights, lead to this very subtle 
non-indulgence in, but uh, connected to everything in life. We're not cut off from. We're not kind of aloof from. We're not kind of uh, remote from. We're in touch with life and everything about life, but we're not holding on to anything. The third characteristic or the third insight is the realization of what's called the anatta characteristic or the the quality that things, events, momentary experiences have no independent, self-existing substance. They're all just made up of other things. And those things themselves are just made up of other things. And so whatever we reach for, whatever we want to acquire for our happiness, for our support, for our mm, reliable security, is just a composite of things which are unstable. And anything that is put together falls apart. You know, anything that you acquire, if it's digital, it's outdated in six months, if it's alive, it's going to get sick, old age, and die. If it's uh, plastic, well, good luck dealing with that. And, <laughs> and, and whatever you acquire has its uh, limitations in that way. It just doesn't last. If it's a value, of course, it gets taxed, or you've got insured, it's going to get stolen, or it's going to rust if it's made of metal. It's just, it's like, what is there that is so solid and stable you can rely on it? Even knowledge gets outdated pretty quick. Okay. So when we see this, when we understand, not just see it, but when we understand, oh, this is the characteristic of all experience, all phenomena and all experience, what is the mind going to reach for when it understands this? It's not going to reach for anything. Yet, everything appears in life as it is. But we understand deeply, deeply inside this does not have any inherent substance to rely on. So we don't reach, we don't grasp, we don't have to let go because we're not holding on. This too allows the mind to just rest in this very subtle, maybe even sublime, um, acceptance of the way things are without indulgence, I mean, without, just, you know, without pushing it away, without pulling it towards us. Equanimity like this is, is, I mentioned it in one of my groups, is beyond pleasure. Pleasure is great. Even subtle pleasure is really great. Equanimity is even more delicate and more... It's a different kind. You can't really say it's happiness. It's kind of beyond that kind of happiness. But it certainly is enjoyable. Okay. There's one last letting go that this path of practice will reveal to us. When the mind is really deeply attuned to the three characteristics, impermanence, non-self, or dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of things, and the mind is not reaching for anything, it is possible for the mind to let go of all known thing, all the known phenomena that we are aware of. And it's possible for the mind to access or to realize the unconditioned, 
that which is not conditioned, that which does not arise and does not pass away, that which is not a composite, but it is a reality. This is Nibbāna. When we can let go of the last thread, so to speak, then it's possible to realize the unconditioned. This is the supreme peace that the Buddha is talking about. You know, when we when I say that little quote at night, Anicca vata sankara, upadvai dhammano, upakituvani urchanti, tisambhupasamosko, the supreme happiness of peace. This is how the Buddha characterized his realization. And it comes through the understanding of peace through renunciation, or peace through letting go. This whole path is a path of learning to let go. And it's not a path of deprivation. Because to the extent that we learn to let go of a lesser happiness, there's a subtler or greater happiness available, up to and including the happiness of peace. Ajahn Chah, a great Thai master of the last century, whose teachings have a lot of exposure here in the West, in speaking to one of his students, he said, so let go. Put everything down. Everything except the knowing. Don't be fooled if visions and sounds, likes and dislikes, arise in your mind during meditation. Just put them down. Don't think a lot. Just know, this is the way things are. Right now, nobody can help you. There's nothing your family or possessions can do for you. All that can help you now is the correct awareness. So don't waver. Let go. Let's take a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.